Uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you're doing that, let me just also wish you a, a happy Memorial Day weekend. It's obviously already been discussed this morning, but, I, but I, too, I too am certainly thankful for the sacrifices of those that have gone before us, uh, particularly those who paid that ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty, those who, act, who, who died actively protecting our freedoms. And, and while I don't want to, nor do I intend to make this political today, I, I will say that, that I believe those very freedoms and, and liberties that people have given their lives for in the past are in grave danger today. And, and the gravest danger actually isn't from without, as it has been in, in the wars that we fought in the past. Today, I'm afraid the gravest danger is within. There are those within our country who, who don't believe in the same liberties and freedoms that at least I would contend that our country was built upon. And, and, and truly, I, I'm not trying to make this political, uh, but I bring that up for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, because it is fitting to the national holiday that, that we're going to celebrate as a nation tomorrow, so it's timely. But two, because there is a connection to our passage this morning. My goal really isn't to discuss politics, but instead to discuss spiritual realities. And as we look at these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, the spiritual reality is that Paul was dealing with those within the Corinthian church who were trying to derail what the Lord had established through him. And, and we've talked about this numerous times over the past couple of weeks. But there were false teachers. There were false accusers. There were, there were those that, that weren't exactly doing the work of the Lord who were, who were running down Paul, saying they were of Christ and that Paul wasn't, and they were trying to discredit Paul and even challenge the core doctrines that he had taught them and the core ministry that he had established there. And there was an attack from within. And Paul is addressing it head on. And what we see in chapter 11 of this book is how Paul lays out the wisdom necessary for the minister to deal with those sorts of attacks. And, and that is the theme for chapter 11. It's wisdom. We've given you a theme for every chapter as we've been going through this book. The theme for chapter 11 is, is wisdom. This, this book on ministry, this manual for ministry that, that God lays out for us. And that's what we see in chapter 11. There is a wisdom, there is a discernment required for the minister to be able to see beyond the physical realm. So like I said a minute ago, there are spiritual realities going on behind the scenes all the time. Not only for the Corinthians in the first century, but for us today as well. And there's a certain amount of godly wisdom required to recognize it and then to know how to deal with it. And, and, and that's what we're going to look at today. And, and as we get started in this chapter, we're, we're just going to look at the first four verses. We're going to look at first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. But, but let me tell you, these are some jam-packed verses. And I, I'm going to try to give you a decent meal today, but, but I'm also going to leave a ton on the table. Right? There's going to be plenty of meat left on the bone for you to go study on your own on this. But what I want to show you this morning is the wisdom of simplicity. The wisdom of simplicity. That's the title of today's sermon. Because while there is so much going on in these, these first few verses of 2 Corinthians 11, what I want you to catch, this is what I want you to understand today, is that the attack of Satan that's kind of going on in the background, in, in that spiritual realm, is primarily focused on attacking the simplicity that we have in Christ. I'm going to explain that for you as we, go, as we go on today. I want you to remember that throughout this message. because Paul is scared that the Corinthians aren't seeing it. That's what he says. And he's addressing them here as their spiritual father and giving them a warning. And he tells them very directly 
what he fears for them spiritually as they are listening to those false teachers physically. But before we get too far into it, let's go ahead and read this passage of Scripture together. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might bellware. Bell, you might well bear with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this passage for us this morning. Lord, it's, there's so much in here. There's, there's so much depth to it. There's so much doctrinal depth. There's so much personal depth and application that we can apply to us. But Lord, uh, I pray that you teach us what you want each one of us to hear this morning. And, and particularly, I believe that that, that is how the how our enemy is trying to steal the simplicity uh, from us that we have in you. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit does the work that only he can do to teach us your word this morning. I pray that everything is said is true to your word. I pray that it is glor- glorifying and it is honoring to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. There really is a lot to unpack here. Uh, but I'm going to go about this a little bit differently even than I, than I normally might. I think you'll see that as we get into it. And we're really going to just focus on verses 3 and 4. We could spend all day on verses 1 and 2, but we're really going to focus on verses 3 and 4. But I do want to walk through verses 1 and 2 kind of, kind of fairly quickly, but, but they do provide for us a good introduction to what, what we're going to get to and what we're going to see in verses 3 and 4. And Paul starts out in verse 1 by asking the Corinthians to bear with him in his folly. Now, the, the folly that Paul is talking about is some boasting of, him, of himself that he's going to do in this chapter. And it's, it's kind of interesting because he just finished talking about not commending yourself. Like, we, that's how we ended chapter 10, verse eight, 18, saying that, you know, anyone that commends themselves, that, that's not worth anything. The only commendation that matters is the one that comes from the Lord. That's what we just saw. We saw it last week. And yet, in the very next verse, Paul says, listen, you got to bear with me a little bit because I'm going to do what I just told you not to do. And we're going to see that in particular in the coming weeks. And he obviously knows it. He obviously knows what he just said, and he knows that that's why he's starting off this chapter this way. And he says, guys, I'm going to be a fool here for a little bit, so you need to bear with me. He says something similar down in verse 23. We'll see that in a few weeks. But again, speaking against these false teachers, he says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. And he's commending himself, but here is what you must understand. He is not doing it because he thinks highly of himself. We have verse after verse in Paul's writings to prove that point. In three separate verses in the New Testament, Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners, the least of all the apostles, and less than the least of all saints. Paul does not have a humility problem, but he is taking this extreme position of commending himself and defending himself in defense of his ministry and in defense of his apostleship. He's not even seeking the Corinthians' approval. That's not even what this is about, but he is defending the truth because he is afraid that converts are being stolen away. And that's what's at risk of happening. So he doesn't, he, that's, that's the issue. If we're commending ourselves because we think highly of ourselves, or we want other people to think highly of ourselves, well, that, that's a problem. Paul wasn't doing that. Paul was commending himself in defense of truth. That's worth defending. That's worth standing for. It wasn't about him. It was about the work of the Lord. And that's what he's getting to. And so what what we're going to see in the coming weeks is the reasons exactly why he's doing it. But he starts to give us a clue here. And it's because of his fatherly love for the Corinthians. He birthed that church. He won them to the Lord. He, He got them started in ministry and the work of the Lord. And now he's concerned for them. 
And verse 3 says he fears that they're going to be beguiled or deceived by the enemy. And you see that fatherly love detailed in verse 2. He's playing the role of father of the bride. Verse 2, he says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And because of his love for them, for this church, he's jealous over them. Because there's another out there that's trying to steal their love. There's another suitor. And Paul's desire for them is that they stay pure. That they stay committed to the truth of God's word. And he's jealous with a godly jealousy. And, And just so you are aware, there are two types of jealousy that we find in the Bible, just as there are two types of sorrow. We saw that in in chapter 7. And Paul's jealousy was a godly jealousy. That's what he calls it. It was right. It came from God, who according to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, is a jealous God. That verse says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He is a jealous God, but it's a righteous jealousy that he has. And, but this isn't just an Old Testament thing. In James 4 verse 5, the Bible says, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? And James is quoting from the Old Testament, but he's making a New Testament application. Because the Spirit of God that dwells inside us as we placed our faith in Jesus Christ and that Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God comes in to indwell us. Now, He is jealous when we don't live our life according to that commitment we made with a godly jealousy. And that happens when we're beguiled. Or as James puts it earlier in his book, when you are drawn away. And enticed, he says that in James 1.14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And listen, for, for all you married couples out there, you understand godly jealousy. If any man loves his wife, you should be jealous in the same way. If another man is trying to tempt your wife, well, you should be jealous about that. That is godly, that is righteous. But, but like sorrow and, and many other things in Scripture, if it's only focused on the physical and not the spiritual, well, it becomes ungodly and unrighteous very quickly. You see that in Proverbs 6.34, for example. For jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. So it can obviously, jealousy, we know this. When it's, when it's inwardly focused and it's more physically focused and it doesn't have a spiritual focus, Well, it becomes carnal and it becomes unrighteous very quickly. And so we need to be careful of that. But that's not the jealousy Paul was exhibiting. The reason that Paul was jealous was because this church that he had birthed was now espoused or or what we might call engaged. You know, in Jewish culture of that day, there there was a, a very specific process. But we might call this an engagement. They were engaged to one husband, and that was Jesus Christ. And, and he so desired for them to remain pure during that espousal period. You see, the bride of Christ is the Lamb's bride. That's us. Those of us that are in Christ. Those of us that are saved. She's called a wife in Ephesians chapter 5. And that represents the present spiritual state as we are even now seated with Christ in heavenly places. We're there spiritually with Christ as his bride. But she's also called a chaste virgin, a spouse to Christ here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And that represents the present physical state as we await the rapture and our ultimate marriage to the Lamb laid out in Revelation chapter 19. And God's desire for us as we await that time, this is our espousal period, is for us to remain pure. Don't cheat on, on your husband-to-be. God wants purity in, 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 in our relationship to him. 
And so both of those can be true and are true at the same time. We are his wife, his bride, and we are his bride-to-be. It's part of the reason why Paul called it a mystery in Ephesians 5.32. Because those can both be true at the exact same time. And listen, if, if all that makes sense to you, great. But if not, if, if you heard some of that and you're like, oh, whew, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. Listen, it's okay. Keep coming. Keep studying. Keep listening. Even what I'm going to talk about today. It, it'll, it'll start making some sense as the Holy Spirit of God starts teaching you the Bible. Because what I went over in, you know, in like one minute there, we could have spent all morning on, truly. But I have a different goal today, and that's really to dive into verses 3 and 4. But I wanted you to understand, I want you to see, you, you have to see, where, where we're going, what Paul, how he lays out what he's getting ready to say in verse 3, and, and how he is, he is jealous for them, he is fearing for them, because he has such a desire for, for, for them to remain true to what he had instilled in them. And, he, and he's worried that, man, they're on the brink. They're on the brink of, of falling off. And so that brings us to verse 3. So look there. He says, but I fear, lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. So Paul is, again, he's defending his ministry, his apostleship, because of his fatherly love for the Corinthians, and he wants them to remain pure and committed to the Lord, but he's, he's scared, he fears that they're being drawn away. And so Paul has some wisdom that he wants to convey, wisdom regarding them not moving off the simplicity that they have in Christ. And he conveys that wisdom through the story in Genesis chapter 3 of this interaction between Eve and Satan, where she was drawn away and she was beguiled by Satan. And, and, and let me just say here, this is, this is sort of a parenthesis uh, to this message, but let me just say here that there are plenty of people out there who like to criticize or, 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 you know, they might say, correct the stories and the facts of the Bible. This even happens in quote-unquote Christian circles. And one of the ways they do that is, is through alleg allegorizing certain passages of Scripture. You know, the ones that obviously can't be true, like Genesis chapter 3. You know, we're all much too smart to actually believe that there is such a thing as a talking serpent you know, or tree, or whatever it was. And this snow white story of Eve eating this poisonous fruit and thus sin entering into the world that obviously didn't actually happen is just an allegory. You know, showing the developing human consciousness and recognizing how the world can be a harsh place. <laughs> That's what I have for that. Because, because this, is, this is important. One of the things that we get from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that was not at all Paul's take. He did not spiritualize or allegorize Genesis chapter 3 at all. Paul clearly believed in the very literal account of Genesis 3. And he feared that the exact same thing was happening to the Corinthians. And it's just, I mean, listen, the the, the Bible has so many evidences of its, of its truth, both internally and externally. Here's Paul believing fully in, in you know, Genesis that was written 1,600 years earlier by Moses and, 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 and speaking it and believing it as literal as it could be. Because it was, because it happened, because it's true. So just tell your spiritually liberal friend, friends that you're going to stick with Paul. He's way more trustworthy anyway. But, but here's what you need to catch. The way Satan was attacking the Corinthians was the exact same way he attacked Eve. And it's the exact same way he attacks us today. And this shouldn't come as a surprise. Because one thing you see throughout the Bible is consistency. For, for all you Bible study students out there, especially if you've been through our How to Study the Bible class in MTT, you know about what's called the rule of Bible study called the law of first mention. 
And all, it, all that is, is it just states that the first time you see something in the Bible, it many times sets a precedent for how you're going to see that same thing throughout the rest of the Bible. And it's not perfect, but it's a good Bible study tool. It's one of the rules we teach. But because what is true is that God and the Bible are consistent. You see consistency throughout Scripture. And Genesis chapter 3 is the first time we run into Satan in Scripture. And we see him trying to beguile or trying to tempt someone in Scripture. And it absolutely sets a pattern for how Satan works. Not only the, the beguiling and the tempting, but how he does it. It sets a pattern, even today in our lives. It was happening in, 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 in Corinth, and Paul was scared for them, as any good pastor should be. And I'm not saying I'm a good pastor, but I'm constantly praying for and concerned about this church as, as your shepherd. And this is a great church. There's not a better one that I know of. And you guys are awesome. And you have a great handle on the Bible. But listen, the moment that any of us, the moment that we aren't on guard is the moment that we are at risk. Because here is what I know to be true. I know that God has a plan for each and every person in this room this morning. He has a plan for your life, and it involves you serving him to his glory with us. It's a beautiful thing. What God has done and what God has established, it's amazing. It's beautiful that we get to do it together. But here's what I also know to be true. Satan also has a plan. And it is to remove and to complicate God's plan for your life. God has something very simple for you to do and for you to accomplish. And, and you know, all of history is just this, it's just this God acting, Satan counteracting. God acting, Satan counteracting. It's no different in your life. God's always acting and Satan's trying to counter. And he's trying to move you off the simplicity that you have in Christ. He wants to beguile you through his subtlety and get you off focus to remove from you the simple, single focus that God has for you. And listen to this. If he can do it without you even really knowing that he's doing it, then even better. That's his goal. And I know that because that's always been his goal. Let's look at the Genesis 3 account. And see him employ it for the very first time. Let's go back and let's compare these stories. Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, that's Eve, Yea, as God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. She's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. Now, to connect this story to our text and to connect this story to our lives this morning, let me give you our first main point. And, and, and our points are just very, very simple. It's a very simple, simple outline this morning. Um, and that is the picture. I, wa I want to show you the picture. I want to show you the typology in this passage and, and why this is important to us and how this story is related to the Corinthians and even more importantly, how this story is related to us. And, and, and here's what you have in type. And I'm going to lay it out for you. I'll go back and I'll break it down quickly. But we could, again, we could spend so much time on each one of these. But I'll, I'll break it down for you a little bit. In the book of Genesis, here's what we have. We have Adam as a type of Christ. Okay, Adam is a type of Christ. Eve is a type of the church. That's you, me, and the Corinthians. Right? Eve is a type of the church. And the serpent, he's playing himself. All right? That, he's Satan. He's just playing himself. 
And Paul recognized these types. That's why he used this story. Paul saw and understood the validity of a story in the Old Testament as an important understanding for New Testament saints to help us live our lives to the glory of God. He understood how these Old Testament passages, the relevancy they have for us today. And again, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on on this, but, but let me give you a few details to prove it. Okay, so first of all, when it comes to Adam. Adam is one of the 21 major types of Christ that you see in the Old Testament. And let me just give you a a couple verses here. At the end of Luke's account in the lineage of Jesus, we read this in Luke 3.38. So he's coming down through the account. I'm just going to read the last verse. Which was the son of Venus, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Okay, so we as the church are, are sons of God collectively. Adam and Christ, they were each called the Son of God, the only two, okay? So there's been two, that Adam and Christ. Additionally, both Adam and Christ's earthly births were miraculous. Adam was created, he was formed out of the dust of the earth, and the Spirit breathed life into him. Well, Christ, he was born of a virgin, conceived of the Spirit. Adam loved his bride, just as Christ loves his bride. Christ was called, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the second Adam. We could go on and on and on about this. But, but you know, I'm going to stop just for sake of time. Now, again, this is a picture. This is a type. Because obviously Adam sinned. Adam sinned in the story we're talking about. And Christ never did. Which only shows us that no type is perfect. They're just types. They point us to biblical truths through biblical principles. But Adam is a type of Christ. Now let me show you Eve. I wanted to start by looking at Genesis 2.18. That verse says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. All right, so this is talking about Eve. Now let me point out a couple things related to Eve being a a help meet for Adam. First of all, I mean, you can read just like I can, but I, I just want to point it out to you. She was a help meet, not mate. Okay? That's actually important. Animals have mates. We have help meets. You need to understand that. Second, it's, it's not one word. It's not a noun. It's two words. She was a help meet or suitable for him. And this was because Adam was given a commission to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But guess what? He couldn't do it alone. So in order to help meet the demands of the commission, Adam was given Eve. And spiritually, we're going to talk about this, we also have this same commission to meet today. But guess what? We can't do it. Only Christ can actually do it. But even he, he has set it up that even he needs us to help. Now, God could do it however he wanted to do it, but this is how he set it up. He needs us to help. We are here on this earth very simply, remember that based on the theme of this message, we are here on this earth very simply to help Christ fulfill his mission. So it's a picture. Also, Eve was not created the same way Adam was. She was, she was created out of Adam's side, right? You remember that? Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 and 22 says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from a man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. So if you, if you, if you think of that, she's brought out of Adam's side. At one of his ribs, and then you flip and move forward to the crucifixion. You remember the crucifixion when Jesus died? He was beaten to a pulp, but right at his death. Do you remember what happened? In John chapter 19 and verse 30, the Bible says that, that that's when he died. Jesus gave up the ghost. And immediately thereafter in verse 34, we read this. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. And forthwith came there out blood and water. So at Jesus' death, through the spilling of his blood, through an opening in his side, out of that came forth the church. 
And, and listen, I, I know all the doctrinal implications of that. I know that the Jews had one more chance through Stephen. I understand all of it. But at his death, he was rejected by those he came to save. And the church was formed, the, the, the basis of the church at least was formed through an opening in his side that sealed his death. The same way Eve was formed. And then also with respect to Eve, you know, I, I've, I've got this question actually a lot throughout the years, is was Adam there? So we read this passage and you don't see anything about Adam. It's, ju it's just Eve and the serpent. And then all of a sudden, in, down in verse 6, you see that she eats and, and she gives to Adam, the Bible says, who, who, with, with her. He was with her. So you know, it doesn't appear that he's with her, and then it says he's with her. So, so which was it? Is Adam there or not? And, and the, answer is, the answer is yes and, and no, because Eve is a great picture of the church. You see, we always have Jesus with us. He lives in us. We can't get away from that. But we also have a free will to cast him aside at any point we want and live our lives just like he's not there. That describes us perfectly. And so we could go on further, but, but I think that hopefully sufficiently describes those types. Now, again, with Satan, he's just playing himself, right? There's not, he's his own type. Um, but that's the picture. Those are the types. But the picture is important when we study it because that brings us to our second point, is that it shows us the problem. We have to understand the picture because the picture shows us the problem. Okay, so now we need to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 for a second. We're beginning to see this picture that Paul is laying out. And the picture is that what Satan did to Eve back in the garden is the same thing that Satan is doing to the church today, both on the day of Corinth and today. And let me just summarize it. I'll just give it to you in one sentence. Satan is attacking faithfulness to the simplicity that is found in Christ. Satan is attacking faithfulness to the simplicity that is found in Christ. That's the problem Paul is trying to combat. He, remember, he's trying to keep this church pure. But he's afraid Satan's going to beguile them, corrupt their minds, and complicate something that's really simple. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 again. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And listen, that risk is absolutely there for us too because there is a simplicity in the role as Christ's help meets. There is a simplicity in the commission that we have been given. We all know Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's it. That's the commission we've been given. That's the job we have. It's evangelism. It's discipleship. But here's the key. It has to be done according to this book. It has to be done according to his truth. We have to teach all things as he commanded us. We don't get to make it up and do it however we feel like doing it. We don't get to define the things we, the way we want to define them. So, so let me take yesterday as an, as an example. Truly, what an awesome day. What a great thing. I, I was here throughout the, the whole morning. It was wonderful. But, but here's what we have to always keep in mind. It was only good because it gave us the opportunity to share the real gospel of Jesus Christ as defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. And it gave us an opportunity to be a good testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ to this community. Giving food in and of itself isn't the commission we've been given. And the danger that you see in Christianity today, all throughout churches today, is to move away from the simplicity that is found in Christ and think things like giving out food is what we always should do. 
I mean, what a great thing. We're making a difference in people's lives. Let's just make that our mission. Look at how people responded. And, and, and listen, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. It was really good. It was cool. It was awesome. I hope we, I hope we do it again. But we can't make that our mission and lose sight of what, why we're even doing that. Because here is what you can't be deceived into, into missing. You can't have your minds corrupted in, into, into forgetting this. That as New Testament sons of God, our entire life and existence is about the spiritual, not the physical. And when we get so caught up, so caught up in the good of the physical that we lose sight of the spiritual... The truth is our minds have been corrupted. That's what verse 3 is talking about. And at that point, we're preaching what 2 Corinthians 11, 4 calls another gospel. And it's based on another Jesus, all led by another spirit. Because it's not based on the truth of God's word. And that's the first aspect of this problem of being subtly beguiled and deceived by Satan is that it results in unfaithfulness to the word of God. It results to, in unfaithfulness to the word of God. And that is exactly what Satan did with Eve. He got her to question God's word. The first thing he said in Genesis 3.1 is, Yea, hath God said? And it's a question, and it brings in a question. Did God really say that you can't eat of every tree of the garden? And when Eve quotes back the instructions that had been given to Adam, by the way, she starts out by taking away from the word of God. Because in Genesis 3.2, she says, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But, but let's look at what God actually said in Genesis 2.16. When he was giving this command to the man, he said, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. And I don't know if you caught it, but Eve left out the word freely in her account. And in that, from all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, we have the very beginning of another gospel. Because Romans 5 tells us that God's gift of eternal life is free. And, and by the way, the eating of the fruit of the tree of life was the means of eternal life in Genesis before the fall. But that's a whole other study that we could spend a whole other morning on. So Eve takes away from the word of God. And then in Genesis 3.3, she adds to the word of God. She says, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. But let's look at what God said in Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Eve said that she couldn't even touch it. God never said that. She added to his words. So first she starts by taking away from his words. Now she's added to his, his words. And in doing both of those, she was beguiled. And it led to her and her husband being unfaithful. It took the simplicity that she and Adam had in the garden. In God's perfect creation. And it complicated everything. And now look at where we're at. What a mess. We go from, from creation in perfect fellowship with its creator. And, and a beautiful, perfect garden in perfect fellowship to now having work and toil and death and homicide and suicide and genocide and government and divorce and taxes, you name it, we got it. You know what it is? And I mean this, it's complication. And Paul was warning the Corinthians that it could happen to them, and I'm warning you, it can happen to you. We've been given a simple commission. Don't fall for the lies of Satan 
that and complicate your life. Be faithful to him. Because when you're beguiled and you become unfaithful to the word of God, it always leads to you being unfaithful to the work of God. Unfaithful to the work of God. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They were unfaithful to what God told them. So they couldn't fulfill the ministry they had been given in the way that God intended. Everything changed. Everything was complicated. And the immediate result of the beguilement of Eve was Cain and Abel. And and all that came of that. And that's not what God intended from the fruit of their relationship. Cain killing his, son, his brother and murder. We have the first murder. It, it's complicated from the beginning. And that's where Paul goes with this in 2 Corinthians eleven four. He said, if you allow Satan to move you off the simple plan that Christ has for your life, well, then if someone comes in preaching, and, and that's an interesting phrase, by the way, for if he that cometh, which is exactly what Satan did. For he that cometh. But when, he says if, if someone, when he comes in, preaching another Jesus or another spirit or another gospel, you'll probably fall for it. That's what he says in verse 4. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might be- bear, you might well bear with him. Or you might allow him to convince you. And when that happens, the work of God in your life, the work that God has for you to do in your life gets short-circuited. It gets complicated. Because that's what spiritual fornication, that's what spiritual adultery always does. Just like physical adultery. Remember the connection to verse 2 of our text. Paul wants them to stay pure. Stay true to the one that they were espoused to. But listen, you want to add complexity to your marriage? Go cheat on your spouse. Tell me how that's going to make things easier. The devil lies to you. He is a liar and the father of it. And he lies to you to corrupt your mind, to think this way is going to be easier. I promise you it's not going to be. I promise you it's not. What is simpler than one man, one woman, faithful to each other for their entire lives? But look at our society today. It's no longer even one man and one woman. It's men together, women together, more than two, you name it. What's simpler than two genders, male and female? Look at what the devil has done with that complication and confusion and the same is true spiritually you allow yourself to be deceived by the devil it just leads to complication and it leads to confusion and with the complication and with the confusion then comes justification and you begin waffling back and forth because being being beguiled by the devil, it leads to double-mindedness. We, we've defined for you, verse, four, or verse 3 talks about the, how you've corrupt, he comes in to corrupt your mind. And we've, we've defined that even for you before when we were in chapter 10. And one of the ways we defined that is as a double mind. That's James 1.8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So you're waffling back and forth, and this looks much easier. It sounds really good. And you're double-minded. And when you're double-minded, you're unstable. Because that's what beguilement causes. 2 Peter 2.14. Having eyes full of adultery. Don't miss the context of all this. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. Beguiling unstable souls. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Cursed children. Once you fall like Eve did, you're unstable. And the obvious isn't so obvious anymore. And things get complicated. And 
just for example, things like the simple and literal reading of Hebrews 10.25 is up for debate. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Well, I mean, what does that really mean? Well, I think I can tell you what it really means, but you might not like it. And then, for example, just for example, you move away from the God-ordained ministry vehicle in the New Testament, the local church, and, and, and you just want to create your own thing. And, I mean, just for example, you know, you're never at church, but it's because the ball field is actually the mission field that God has called you to. No, I'm sorry, it's not. Because now you've now complicated what God made very simple. And he will never contradict himself. And listen, hear what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not saying to, not, to you know, not be involved in youth sports. I was involved in youth sports. My kids have been involved in youth sports. There's so much good in youth sports, truly. That's not my message at all. But my message is God's not going to say, well, yeah, I'm never going to be at church on Sundays, but this is because he's called me to this mission field. No, come on, man. Come on. You know that's not true. And if you think it's true, it's because you got a corrupt mind. God's made it simple. Don't complicate it. Don't, I'm, I'm telling you this stuff because I love you. I'm Troy. I'm your pastor. I love you. But listen... I, I mean that, though, too, because when you fall into that trap, you've accepted another Jesus, and you're being led by another spirit, and whether you know it or not, you're preaching another gospel. I mean, most, pe- most people aren't preaching any gospel, but that, by definition, is preaching another gospel, because you're not preaching the real one, and that's the work we've been given. Evangelize, disciple, through the authority of Christ that God has given to the church. That's it. But the sad truth is that in Laodicea, the average Christian today doesn't really understand who Christ is and and personal holiness through the life of Christ. And the average Christian today doesn't comprehend who the Spirit is and what walking in the Spirit truly looks like. And the average Christian today doesn't, or they think that the gospel is offensive. So instead of, of preaching the gospel, they try to do good things in, soci- in society and live a good life. It's another Jesus, it's another spirit, and it's another gospel. And it has nothing to do with the simple work to which we've been called. No, let's be faithful to that. Let's be faithful to the, the, to the one who, is, who has called us. And to the, to the calling that he's called us to. Let's have the wisdom to see what we need to see. And the discernment to do what we need to do. And that brings us to our last point. I don't, I don't want to leave you hanging. So I have to talk about number three. And that's the protection. And now, again, this is a little bit different. Because this really isn't in our text. But I couldn't give you the warning without giving you the simple answer. And it's shockingly simple. Because if the problem is unfaithfulness to the word through beguilement, and beguilement leads to unstableness in your mind and then unfaithfulness to the work, then the protection, the answer is don't move. Don't move off of what God has clearly showed you. Believe and apply 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Right? If we want to always abound in the work that we have been called to, we need to be steadfast. We need to be unmovable. Don't move. Don't move off of it. That's how you stay on task and stay faithful to the job that he's given you. That's how you abound in the work of the Lord. It's, it's through just sticking to the solid rock that never moves. We talked about first mention earlier. I love the first mention of the word steadfast in the Bible. It's found in the book of Ruth. Chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, And when she saw, when, when Naomi saw that Ruth was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. See, it starts in the mind. It's chapter 10 
of 2 Corinthians. That's why that chapter is so important leading into the rest of this book. This is still about the mind and having the wisdom you need to make the right decisions when, when you're faced with them. And when that serpent comes calling, and you have to make the right decision in those moments, you need wisdom that comes from this book. You don't need anything I say. You certainly don't need anything the world says. It's right here. That's what you need. And that sets your minds right. And so you need to know that this, this morning that the devil is still at work. And so because of that, there is a picture that we need to understand. A picture of exactly how our enemy attacks. Because when you understand the picture, then you can see the problem. And the problem we have today is unfaithfulness to the word of God, which always results in unfaithfulness to the work of God. It's taking what God has made very simple, bringing in confusion and complication. I, I love the way Solomon says it in Ecclesiastes 7.29. He says, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Complication, man. Reminds me of Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan complicates. God keeps things simple. So let me ask you, what is keeping you from just believing in his simple gospel, living out his simple plan for your life, taking this book and just taking it and, and what you see and taking it at face value and not reading into it what you want to see in your flesh, just believing what it says. But maybe there is someone in here and you've never heard the simple gospel or you've never placed your faith in it. Just in case that's true, let me give, you, give it to you. Here is the simplest way I can say it. That if thou shalt confess thy mouth, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See how simple that is? Now it's been complicated and beguiled by individuals and religions and they've added things like, you know, requirements of works and be baptized or a second blessing or having to be predestinated. Some will tell you even once you get saved that you can lose it, but there are different systems they have to set up to determine what sins actually cause you to lose it and how you actually get it back. It's all complication. None of it's biblical. The gospel is so simple it can be understood by a child. It's an adult decision, but all it takes is a childlike faith and simply believing what God has said and placing your faith in that. And if you want to do that this morning, man, I want you to. I promise you I do. You can place your faith in Jesus Christ today and have it settled that you'll spend eternity in heaven with him. You can know today. Man, if you don't know, why do you want to leave out here and go out into a world that is just going to complicate things? Get, get that settled today. And we're going to sing a, a, a final song here. And, and listen, if you don't know, if you're here today and you don't know if you're saved, why don't you just walk forward during that song? When we're singing, just come forward. Somebody will want me, I'll meet you down here. I'll hook you up with somebody that can show you today, right now, what it means in simple terms Amen. to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Amen. I want you to do what's keeping you. What's keeping you?